issue one was that unbelievable back of the limo ride with Lennon and Dylan, right? That's correct. Yeah, it's quite scarce that one now. So in the in the thirtieth anniversary edition, Mojo three sixty should be in the shops more or less when this comes out. We have a regular feature in the magazine on the inside back page called Hello Goodbye, where we talk to people who've been in a band and how they um, joined the band and how they left the band. And in a little bit of self indulgence this month, we've done Hello Goodbye with our founding editor and Mojo itself. Wow. Um, Welcome to Discograffiti, the podcast that gives Gen X music maniacs a chance to smell like teen spirit again by connecting with a brotherhood obsessed with rating the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever mattered. I'm your host, Dave Gebro, and with three new episodes each week, you're going to gain a comprehensive knowledge of an act's history and output in the time it takes to listen to one album. In this episode, we'll be turning our spray cans on Mojo Magazine and its venerable editor, John Malvey, in an interview that commemorates the 30th anniversary of Mojo. Hard to believe, but it's true. There, there. Don't cry because it's true, fellow loyal readers. Smile because it happened. Coming up, we've got Bob Nastanovich, Deer Tick, Corey Hansen from Wand rating everything he's ever done, Mike Watt rating the entirety of the Minutemen's output, and Steve Turner from Mud Honey. So don't miss out. Open up your listening app right now and subscribe. And for premium membership benefits that outrival the competition week after week, visit patreon.com slash discograffiti. At this point, we've got 100 episodes available exclusively on Patreon. And that number, as well as the discograffiti inner circle, is growing exponentially by the day. That's patreon.com slash discograffiti. And away we go then. In a strange coincidence of timing, during the intro of the series that we're currently running while recording this summit meeting, a series that was assembled from a 13-hour interview in which the two founders of 1960's soft pop act, The Association, rate everything they've ever released from zero to five stars, I drop a mention in the intro to those episodes regarding the concept of self-effacing anonymity. Today's guest implored me over email, and I quote, I would say that Mojo and the music I like are much more interesting than me personally, so I'd be keener on navigating away from personal reminiscences where possible. I, too, am far less interesting than my incredibly refined musical taste, and so I'll erase myself today as well in solidarity with this man so you can see and hear our favorite works with even greater clarity as we both exist in the breezy shadow of the towering monolith that is great music. He's across the pond, so I've got to assume that he must have just had a cuppa. It's Mojo Magazine's editor, John Mulvey. Well, I'm going to um, destroy yet another one of your stereotypes here, Dave, because <laughs> I don't actually drink tea. That's it. Uh, this conversation's over. Yeah, I've ruined everything now, haven't I? So I want to talk about my introduction to Mojo, because sure. I am not a casual reader of Mojo. I am an obsessive, compulsive reader of Mojo. I remember the moment I first saw it, and the way that I look back on it is like how some people remember the moment they met their 
spouse. I was on my way to see Mary Lou Lord. This is in New York in December of 97. And I walked by a shop window and there is an issue with Dylan on the cover. And along with him, there were incredible articles about Rundgren, about Badfinger. It was my taste. I mean, I've been reading music magazines, music journalism my whole life. But this moment, it was like, this is the magazine I'd been looking for my entire life. And I read it monthly the exact same way, which is cover to cover, even stuff I'm not innately interested in. I know you guys are going to do an amazing job on it. So I read it. And I always have a concurrent list of songs and records and artists that sound interesting. And I've ceased to need to ask fellow Americans about what they're listening to because I get it all from you guys. I can't even thank you enough because you guys are my constant companion. Cool. <laughs> I'm going to pretend that I know all this innately, but actually what I've done is I've put up a crib sheet of all the previous issues and covers, and uh, it looks like it was Mojo 51, cover dated February 1998, so that must have come out kind of end of December, early January 1998. Dylan Speaks is the cover line, which is an yes. interesting one. I can't remember where that interview came from. I don't think it was Mojo's, actually, because I'm not 100% convinced Dylan has ever actually spoken to Mojo, which is one of our uh, great regrets, I suppose, really, is that we've never managed to get an interview with him. I mean, I'm all too aware that very few people have managed to get an interview with him in the past 25 years, at the very least. Or one that he's actually giving you essential information and not just fucking with your head. Yeah, there was that woman at, where was it? It was like Entertainment Weekly or somewhere like that, or People Magazine. It was a woman, Edna Gunderson, I think her name was, who he kept <laughs> he kept doing interviews with around every record, and they were always about 400 words in very short <laughs> Q&A for me. It was, it was very odd. It, but yeah, anyway, this issue appeared to have got Todd Rundgren, Spiritualized, Corner Shop, Elvis Costello and Grail Marcus. What else is there? ACDC, Mark Hollis, High Llamas, Ian That's Brown. That's right. I remember reading, I believe there was a review of the Mark Hollis self-titled solo record in there. And what an amazing piece of work that is. It, it just happened to nail a bunch of favorites of mine. Sure, yeah, yeah. And, you know, the next phase of my journey journey with Mojo is, you know, recently started this podcast and the impetus in me actually, before it was really safe to do so, in chucking my career as a hearing instrument specialist, testing for hearing loss and fitting hearing aids, and went full bore doing this podcast full time for fellow music obsessives like myself and you who need to celebrate daily and validate sliding down endless rabbit holes and deep dives. So Mojo... You know, there's no person from Mojo that's been putting a voice in my ear, but Mojo, I feel, created this foundation for me to think, well, there's a huge readership out there that's keeping this magazine alive during a time when it is seemingly difficult to do so. Those people are out there, and so I'm just going to do this. And a lot of that comes down to, you know, Mojo being a sort of silent partner of mine. That's great, yeah. I mean, I hope we have a similar impact on other people's lives. I hope we're not making people quit their day jobs left, right and centre, though. I'd be a bit worried if they were all going quite as extreme as that. But one of the things that hit me during the first lockdowns that we had in this country, certainly, I guess you were probably in similar situations in the States, were how much something as seemingly ephemeral as magazines can mean to people and how much of a sense of implied community a magazine can create. 
and that sense that there are diverse people out there who have a shared outlook on life and a shared kind of cultural set of values. Not necessarily the same musical taste per se, but a similar interaction with, I guess, a long view of musical history, which means that they're passionately engaged in new releases, but they see them as part of a continuum and are eager to make those big links that see the best new music as part one way or another of a big tradition. And when you share those values and when you feel isolated for various reasons, but collectively so many of us, I guess, did through those lockdowns, my experience was that people start writing to you about what the magazine means to them and the fact that, you know, we carried on publishing, that we didn't interrupt our publishing schedule. I'm, you know, all too aware that we weren't unique in that. The vast majority of magazines did manage to pull that off. But I still think that people were surprised surprised and grateful that we all managed to do that and our sort of small importance in the great scheme of people's lives became more apparent to me and I'm very humbled by it I suppose. To me and others like me it's not a small importance at all. It really isn't because this may be a hobby to many people but you know if your whole life has been waking up starting to think about music and it just doesn't end till you go to sleep you know I thought when I was a teenager that over time there'd be other elements of life that would get in the way and and the prioritization of music would slide down. It's only gotten more intense for me. And the way that I sign off on the show every week is don't let our youth go to waste. And that to me is what it Good is. This, and <laughs> Do you know what? I think about this quite often. I think about all these things quite often because I'm one of those people too, but also I'm one of those people who has to make business sense out of that, I suppose, by being the editor of a magazine. And I remember when I worked at the NME in the 1990s, there was some audience research or something similar came out at some point in the 1990s, which asserted something that I think is reasonably commonly understood now, which is that people's taste and especially their musical taste has in many cases set by the time they're about 25. And that that critical engagement where they're really open to new things and new music is predominantly from adolescence through to those post-college years where life starts intervening, I suppose, and hobbies have to take a back seat. And that is the kind of pivot point, I think, for where music fans and music obsessives, the road separate. Right. Do you see what I mean? Most normal people have their taste set in stone by the time they're about 25, and they might pick up a few new things over the years, but generally they're kind of of voracious engagement with new music or unheard music because I always want to categorise the fact that there can be new music to you that is a really obscure crate digger record that you know that only had 400 copies pressed in 1971 or something like that we're always finding new stuff that appetite that drive naturally dissipates in most people but for quite a lot of us it doesn't and in many cases as you were just articulating it intensifies the older you get and I think that's our audience and I think one of the great privileges I have as being editor of Mojo is that I have a publishing company backing me up who don't see any need to reach beyond obsessives. That if we see ourselves as a global magazine rather than just a British magazine, our outlook and our canon and the way that we try and expand that canon and the sort of music that we cover, the both old and new, there is an audience out there for it and there is an audience for a magazine which writes intelligently, talks intelligently about that music. And we don't have to dumb down and we don't have to make concessions to passing fads and we don't have to 
to grapple to try and find a younger demographic necessarily. You know, we're not prey to a bunch of commercial imperatives that a lot of music publications historically have been because we've got a really secure and dedicated audience and we know what they like and we're going to keep delivering it to them. That being said, how many letters a week do you get from readers who are imploring you to not put the Beatles on the cover anymore? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, that, that's classified. <laughs> we had a recent cover with Susie Sue on the cover. Oh, yeah. And I got one or two um, really unpleasant letters about putting her on the cover, I have to say. But that's a healthy discussion. I think that there are a bunch of people out there who are still fighting the 1977 punk wars, you know? There is still a divide, and that divide exists in our region. I think a lot of our readers have circumnavigated that, but it still exists a little bit. You know, my favorite thing, I believe, about the magazine, the article that best explains my love of what you do is, I don't remember when this was, but there was an article about the Doug Yule squeeze era of Velvet Underground. It was a long article and it just focused on the Steve Sesnick era when he was trying to take the group <laughs> over. And I was like, this, I can't get enough of this because no other magazine would A, focus on this. It would be like a generic overview of the band of which there's very little left for me to learn. But to focus on that is endlessly exciting just thinking about the conceptualness nature of that. Well, you know, I can't take credit for that one. That was before my time, I'm pretty sure. When did you start as editor? I joined the magazine in at the start of 2018. Um, okay. Before that, I was editor of, ironically, its chief competitor in the UK, Uncut Magazine. I've had a bunch of your best writers on the show. I had Bob Mayer rating the entirety of the Replacements catalog. I just yeah, had... I bet he did, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just had Joel Sullivan on doing an amazing two-parter on Jim Gordon. Oh, he's, he's got a book coming out, hasn't he? Yeah, I can't wait. I can't wait. It's coming out February. In addition, you know, just to sort of accentuate the overlap here, I've had Vashti Bunyan on recently, and she rated her entire output. Don Randy rating every single thing that David Axelrod ever did. David Ritz on Marvin Gaye. That metal shows Jim Florentine doing four weeks on Sabbath, and Lou Barlow on The Zombies. Vashti's one of the nicest people I've ever reviewed a record of, I have to say. When um, Just Another Diamond Day was reissued for the first time i guess it was what 97 or 98 something like yeah that. i reviewed it and i got the loveliest letter from her about just getting it and i think probably because subsequent to that obviously i've read her book now and that kind of thing and i don't think i called it folk i think that's basically why she liked the review so much she hates that uh, word she hates that word exactly and of course when you listen to the record it's not really folk it has some of the sort of aesthetic trappings of folk music but it isn't really a folk record at all and she recoils from it doesn't she and so she wrote me this it was so sweet it was an amazing letter i still got, I still got it somewhere as you imagine she was so wonderful you know she she was through her pr person was very clear that i only had a very limited amount of time and within minutes she could tell that this was the most prepared any interview had really been i mean i read her book i listened to every last thing she had done again because i knew it all she was way on board and did extra recordings with me bonus shows all kinds of stuff she's a sweetheart okay so enough about discography i do want to say that you know sort of the typical 
typical format of the show is, you know, we're rating stuff. And so it's a departure from the format. We're going to just, as you can well imagine, entirely focus on Mojo, the magazine's history, and how this thing's been trucking along for so long. Could we just talk about the normal format for a second? Because there's something sure. I want to talk about Please. a little bit, which is that we do kind of how to buy guides in Mojo where we rank the 10 best albums of an artist or, or a label or something like that. And, you know, we have our end of year lists and that kind of thing. And I totally understand the kind of editorial need to do these things. I have to say, though, from a personal point of view, one of the things that I find harder as I get older is ranking music. I genuinely do. That kind of organising a catalogue. You know, I used to be able to say, yeah, my favourite album of all time is Pet Sounds. I used to just be able to sort of say that with absolute conviction. Yeah. And I guess for the past five or ten years, I'm utterly incapable of being able to do that now. I just really don't feel confident in ranking stuff in the way that I used to do. I, it all feels a lot more complex than was the case. You know, I can do a list of my 30 or 40 best albums of the year and I can rank them, but a lot of that ranking is predicated on what I've played most in 2023 or whatever. Do you know what I mean? And I really struggle conceptually with this now. And I'm very yeah. conscious that I didn't when I was younger. It's interesting. Well, it, you know, it's probably not the response that you were expecting, but I completely agree with you. And the notion on the show and something that I actually verbalized in this way is that it's sort of a quest for higher truth using lists and, you know, nerdy compendiums of this, that, and the other thing in order to get there. Because Mm -hmm. a, a lot of the people who are on the show are so used to talking about their own work, their own career. And so to get them into a frame of mind where they're sitting around on a Friday night drinking a beer or hitting a spliff and just casually talking about music and entering that fanboy or fangirl frame of mind, it's a disarming of what they're usually asked about because it does become a self-effacing thing. That is kind of the nature of the show is let's talk about something or or someone else so we can drop all pretenses and when i feel like that's happened on the show i don't care where in the course of things we are i switch into personal interview mode and i do a personal interview in the course of it i realize as a 51 year old man that the best album the second best album the third best album of all time don't necessarily live in those places or those designations but there isn't a single person that i know who loves music who doesn't love just sorting like that it's i guess a way to to make sense of the world but as the editor of mojo it must be impossible to keep that ruse up there's just so much <laughs> coming at you right yeah i guess so i mean i think one of the things i've always been reasonably comfortable with as an editor and as a section editor when i was younger is being able to make pragmatic distinctions between what i personally really like and what i think our readers will really like and what i think is best to put in a magazine so are you a big closet minuto fan or are you really into <laughs> <laughs> what you write about. Hi, I'm Dave Gebro. I threw my career as a licensed hearing instrument specialist in the trash, sold my house, and moved to the East Coast with my wife and four-year-old son in order to focus on making the ultimate podcast for music obsessives thrive. Now I need your help. Although Discography is rated in the top 2% of all podcasts globally, the economics of this thing are tricky. My monthly income at the moment totals a whopping 760 bucks. Becoming a member of 
of Discograffiti's Patreon gives you access to over 100 more episodes. And moving forward, you'll get up to three shows a week. There's the main show every Friday, Wednesday's brand new series, The Top Ten, and Monday's Wildcard episode, which could be anything from interview bonus material, our buried treasure show, Rock Cousteau, our slag-off show, Queasy Listening, and exclusive limited series like The Private Press with Paul Major. And if you've got no financial worries to speak of, keep in mind that some of the higher Patreon tiers allow you to actually advertise on the show, choose the bands we cover, or even some of the guests we get. For the price of a cup of coffee a week, you can ensure my family's fed, build a music library that'll be the envy of your block, and connect to a thriving community of music maniacs all at the same time. Don't risk feeling badly about yourself by not giving. Patreon.com slash Discograffiti. Once again, that's Patreon.com slash Discograffiti. And now back to our expertly crafted program. Yeah, I'm into what I write about. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of the Mojo canon things that's very dear to me. You know, I'm a huge Neil Young fan, and I like Dylan, and I like the Rolling Stones, and I love the Grateful Dead. I feel hesitant now to ask you about these things, but you've got to have a favorite Dead era. Yeah, I, hmm, yeah. I think I was one of those cliched people who really liked '72 for a long time, and all the Deadheads used to roll their eyes and sigh at me. But it's contingent on where we are with the reissues program, and that. Kind right. Right, right, right. Listening to. And so I am listening, I have been listening to a lot of 73 this year, and I do like 73 because of that kind of slightly jazzier sound. I always think one of the ways that I always try and sell the Grateful Dead to sceptical people, and God knows there are enough sceptical people about the Grateful Dead, certainly in this country. Certainly in this house, in fact. <laughs> One of the things that I try and talk to them about is to consider the Grateful Dead a jazz band rather than a rock band or a psychedelic band. Because sure. sometimes what they do and the way that they interact and the improvisatory nature of their music, I think is better understood as jazz than it is in a rock context. That's totally true. But to be fair, I believe that the only time they were truly a jazz band was during that pocket of time from 71 to 74 when Mickey Hart left. Because... When you have two drummers, you cannot turn on a dime like that. Yeah, I mean, 73, I think, is a special year for it because I think Jerry's playing is really nuanced. I think I've been listening a lot to different versions of Eyes of the World and the solos in Eyes of the World recently. So good. And it's great. And you can really hear the kind of jazz antecedents of what he's doing, the kind of Charlie Christian kind of stuff and that sort of thing. There's a real kind of, there's a nimbleness to him. And I talked on, I was on the um, Jesse Jarnow's wonderful Good Old Grateful Dead podcast a couple of years ago and I was talking about my initial skepticism and lack of understanding of the Grateful Dead because I think coming from a background of kind of indie rock in the 80s and 90s a lot of our concepts certainly in the UK concepts of psychedelia were based on heaviness and drone and repetition which is ironically closer to you know a very unpsychedelic band like the Velvet Underground but a lot of bands that were sold you know we were just talking about that Mojo 51 with Dylan on the cover spiritualized were in that issue as well and that must have been around the time Ladies and Gentlemen, gentlemen when yeah. Floating in Space came out and I think I always perceived that as a psychedelic record 
forward. And I'm not really sure it is nowadays, to be honest. You know, it's like that playing. There's a lot of remorseless, minimalist playing in that sort of psychedelia and that sort of rock music. And of course, that's the antithesis of what the Grateful Dead do a lot of the time. It isn't just that kind of slamming down on the pedals. There's that lightness to what they do, which is that kind of almost an ethereal kind of feather-like kind of sound to sure, their playing yeah. and to the way that the instruments interact with each other, which isn't that grind. And so I initially thought this is anathema to what I believe in like psychedelia is. But then you see it through a prism of jazz music, which I like a lot. And then you start hearing it a different way and, and those expectations fall away and something better emerges in their place. So tell me, when you were a little John, when you were obsessed with lists, because it had to have been a phase in your life where you were really into that. Tell me about maybe a seminal early experience with music that put you on the course to where you are now. One thing that's probably quite an important thing to say is that I've never played a musical instrument in my life. I have no musical talent or aptitude or understanding whatsoever. You know, I bluff it all. And I suppose I always wanted to be a music writer from reading The Enemy from when I was about 13, something like that. And I grew up, I'm doing I'm doing the personal reminiscence thing. You've tricked me into it. I did, but we, corner, we need yeah. context. No, no, so I think a lot of people can identify with the idea, or I hope a lot of people can identify with the idea of growing up somewhere small in the kind of 1970s and 1980s where it's quite hard to actually find the records that you want to own. Yeah. And it's certainly pretty difficult to be able to see any of the bands that you want to see. And so everything becomes a bit more mystical and idealized and seen through the terrible untrustworthy prism of the music press <laughs> and, um, and also and no so, no uh, internet and no internet exactly yeah so it's kind of you know in, in britain we had one or two wonderful radio shows on national radio that were an absolute boon for people like myself but critically, there were weekly music papers and those inducted us into a world, you know, a cultural world and a political world as well as a musical world at the time, which I think was an incredibly valuable formulation of what I did. And also a diversity of music, which is certainly something which we really try and represent in Mojo. You know, it's like the enemy in the mid-80s, their readership loved the Smiths, you know, and I loved the Smiths. But also at the same time as that, I was buying cassette tapes from them, from their mail order thing where they will be compiling the best of the Blue Note jazz label or a tape of African music or a tape of post-1970 German electronic music with a load of Kraftwerk and Can and, you know, not all electronic, you know, uh, a load of motoric stuff, you know, Noi and that kind of thing. They were putting these tapes out and I was buying these tapes and I was learning about this incredible richness of music. So while I was kind of foundationally some kid who was really into guitars, bass and drums, I was also learning about and, and learning to love this this incredible wealth of music, which I think has stood me in really good stead for what I've ended up doing and editing a magazine like Mojo, where we do try and represent, you know, music that doesn't just come from the UK and the US and that there is a strong element of jazz music in those. Like the new issue, the 30th anniversary issue, which is out now, I wrote a couple of big reviews in there. One was of the new Wilco album. I can't wait to hear that. Yeah, it's good. You'll like it. And the reissue of the Ferris 
Sanders Pharaoh album. From 77. Yeah, which, which I thought I owned until <laughs> I discovered this new Luaka Bop edition is actually the first official reissue of it. And what I'd bought a couple of years ago was a very sort of upscale bootleg, actually. Shame. But yeah, what, what an amazing record. So that, you know, I was very fortunate in being schooled in this kind of breadth of music, which means that now, you know, 40 years on, I can write about Pharaoh and Wilco in the same issue. Yeah. And to me, it's like, I know that Tweedy was talking recently about how crucial it is to be listening to Alabaster de Plume. And, you know, so all these things are tied together. If you're a real music fan, you can find one degree of separation between all great things. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting though, isn't it? Because I do think there are residual traces of tribalism amongst our contemporaries. And I think one of the benefits of streaming, and I think there are all sorts of moral complications around streaming, but one of the many benefits of it is that time and genre effectively collapses in the overpowering face of the algorithm. And it means that they don't have that kind of tribal loyalties that a lot of people did back then. And, you know, hopefully a bunch of us have kind of, you know, either from being exposed to a diversity of music when we were young, fortunately, rather because I'm critically aware that that wasn't always possible in, you know, very segmented radio playlists and scarcity of peers with cool record collections and that kind of thing. It's, it, it can be hard, you know. My dad was really into big band music mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. Frankly, quite a lot of not very good British big band music. But he did love things like Duke Ellington and that, which is great. I definitely rebelled against that kind of jazz when I was younger. Yeah. But, you know, as I got older, it started making sense. You know, I started listening to a load of Duke Ellington records. By the way, um, a great act that I was introduced to in the pages of your magazine that I did a trawl of their entire discography recently. Really love him as Nucleus. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Love Nucleus. So I should say as well, without talking too much about my family, my wife is also quite a prominent newspaper music critic in the UK. So oh, man. we're a double threat, really. No more about you personally. So who has been instrumental in shaping the magazine toward the beginning of its history? And how did it come about? I wasn't on board quite at that point. I think issue one was that unbelievable back of the limo ride with Lennon and Dylan, right? That's correct. Yeah, it's quite scarce that one now. So in the in the 30th anniversary edition, Mojo 360 should be in the shops more or less when this comes out. We have a regular feature in the magazine on the inside back page called Hello Goodbye, where we talk to people who've been in a band and how they um, joined the band and how they left the band. And in a little bit of self-indulgence this month we've done hello goodbye with our founding editor and mojo itself wow um, so it's quite cool that's the first um, deviation i believe because every single month yeah. in a band yeah hey guys before we go on i just got to tell you about this amazing podcast i came across i feel like i may be the last one to the show on this but these guys are absolutely amazing First, greatest show title ever. It's called the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. I mean, genius, right? But these guys absolutely live up to it. It's Jason Colvin and James D. Graves, and they usually pit two iconic movies or albums against each other to pick which is best, like Jaws versus Jurassic Park or Appetite for Destruction versus Back in Black. But they're so well-researched that they never fail to blow my mind and so funny that they never fail to make me laugh. It's the best of all worlds. Plus, they've started a series of top five lists this season that totally take me back to the misspent days of my youth. I can't recommend them enough. The Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. Check it out. 
I should say one other thing. I think I'm the sixth editor of Mojo in 30 years, and the previous five all write for us still from time to time. I'm not sure many magazines could say something like that, really, that there's been no acrimony and terrible fallouts and huge changes of direction and that kind of thing. There's been a consistent, you know, it's evolved and the magazine's changed in certain ways over the years, but I'm going to read a bit of this piece, actually, because... Please. The editor's name is Paul Denoyer, and he was only editor for a couple of years, and he chose to step down, and he basically anointed his own successor, a guy called Matt Snow, and as a gesture of his own kind of modesty, I think, he actually stayed on at the magazine for a few months as reviews editor after having been launch editor, which is a kind of measure of what a nice place it is to work and what nice people yeah. work there, really, rather than kind of crazy power struggles or whatever. Let me read this bit, because Please. this is kind of how I think he and a couple of other senior people at the publishing company at the time came up with the idea of Mojo, and how I think we've stayed loyal to that and developed it over the past 30 years. So this is what he says. He says, I take great pleasure and a certain amount of pride in just how good Mojo is, and I'm very pleased to think I had some hand in getting it going. I mean, the magazine got better. Ideas are relatively easy. It's the execution that matters and how a team of people can get every bit of it right and keep refreshing it. And so many discerning people became its readers. We always used to say Mojo was not for people whose clocks had stopped, you know. That's kind of what I was talking about earlier, you know, right. about how they'd never lost their curiosity for new music. And then the thing that I really love, he says, in my head, chronology isn't very important. Whatever was created in the past is in some sense informing the great new music that gets made now. I think, and this is pure dopey scouse mysticism, all music kind of exists simultaneously. Somewhere in some dimension, Elvis Presley is stepping up to a microphone to sing Heartbreak Hotel for the very first time. <laughs> and that is something that is close to the secret, I think, of Mojo. That's great, isn't it? It's kind of like, I'm never going to better that as a manifesto for what I do with this magazine. I'm just going to nick what he said every time. And maybe I'll take the dopey Scouse mysticism bit out because I can't pass myself off as a Liverpudlian. Was this one person's vision initially? No, it was it was three people's vision. He was the editor of another British music magazine called Q, which was hugely successful at the time. Unfortunately, it was a casualty of the pandemic over here. Mm -hmm. It was a more mainstream magazine. And he and a couple of senior editorial consultants at the business kind of publisher, creative director kind of people came up with the idea. But was it his creative impetus? It was three of them, plus okay. a designer. There were four of them at the core. It's hard to pass this, to be honest, because I think Paul is very modest. And so exactly how much of it was his vision and how much of it was brainstormed between four very talented publishing experts remains to be seen. But four very talented publishing experts who are passionate about music. I should name them all, actually. Mark Allen and David Hepworth were the sort of editorial mentors, the sort of publishers. And Andy Cowles was the creative director. You know, we're all very um, indebted to their early work, really. How does it come together every month? You know, in my subconscious, I kind of am always astrally projecting myself out to the offices to see how stressful or not stressful it is. How does this all come together every month? It's so rich. There's so much in there, including photos you're just never going to see anywhere else. So is it like 
like a last minute thing where it somehow mystifyingly comes together in the last second? Or have you guys figured out a workflow that's not batshit crazy? I like to think that we've got a workflow that isn't batshit crazy. Like any publishing endeavor, there are still sort of seat of pants moments. Yeah. Um, I'm not naturally a seat of pants guy. Sometimes shit happens and you've got to get on with it. You know, it's like David Bowie dies and everything changes and you're dealing with grief and a massive kind of emotional loss to you as a music fan and at the same time you've got to rip up an entire magazine and put a new one together you know this is what happens and you know we're journalists this is what we have to do in most months it's not like that what i would say i suppose is that the secret ingredient of mojo is that people who work for mojo tend to stick around because mm. without being complacent or arrogant i think if you're a certain kind of music journalist and you end up at mojo there's not really anywhere else where you're going to want to move on to I've been there for five and a half years. I'm more or less the interloper. Our production editor's only been with us for a couple of years. That was because our previous production editor retired after 20-odd years. More or less the rest of the team have been there for upwards of 20 years, in some cases 25-plus years. Fred Deller was there from the beginning, right? Until he passed Fred Deller away. was there from the beginning, yeah. So he wasn't on staff as such. He was an eminent squeeze in the provinces. <laughs> contact us with nuggets of information about Peggy Lee every month. Talk about an irreplaceable figure. We were alluding earlier to growing up in the 70s and 80s without the internet. Fred had the internet before the internet existed somehow. <laughs> I'm not <Yeah>. quite sure. <laughs> but it's kind of like, you know, one of the sad things, but sort of touching things after he died was, I don't know what his son ended up doing with Fred's archives. You know, he had this incredible fire risk of clippings, as mm -hmm. far as I could tell, you know, which unfortunately we can take but he didn't live in London so you know we all knew him well and I worked with him in the 90s when he was at NME as well so you know he lived quite away from London so we, I don't think any of us actually got to see exactly how he did it but yeah he was he was an amazing amazing man when I think about what it actually is like there in the office my knee-jerk picture is you know a bunch of people dressed up in onesies playing air guitar and having midnight discussions about the top rock operas of all time I'm sure it's not like that what is yeah, the vibe it's really, it's really not like that no. yeah yeah um, <laughs> what is it like because you have these people who are so passionate about this thing all right that about does it a heartfelt discography thanks goes out to my beautiful wife and son jen and mason john mulvey the outrageously outstanding mojo magazine whose 30th anniversary issue is on sale now and which i'm just about to start after i finish the current issue my incredibly loyal fans and a especially the entire Patreon community, the soldiers of sound. I love every last one of you, and this show would not exist without you, my friends. Speaking of friends, it's high time for some new ones. They're in our Facebook group, Discography Soldiers of Sound. That's the best way to find out what's coming up on the show, but there's a hell of a lot more. You get recaps of the day in music history, the ability to pitch questions to guests, polls that put you in the driver's seat on guest and band decisions, and access to a thriving creative hub if you're looking for a collaborator. In fact, 
fact, I know firsthand about some very exciting projects coming together because of fellow soldiers who collided in our incredible group. Honestly, it is objectively the only worthwhile thing that's ever come from Zuckerberg's college efforts. So make sure you don't miss out. You can find the link to the Discography Soldiers of Sound Facebook page right there in the show notes. And if you don't mess with the Zuck, no sweat. Just email me at info at discograffiti.com and I'll keep you in the loop. So now that it's done and you want more, another way to dive even deeper into the pantheon of irrefutably mind-blowing Mojo-approved music is to visit Episode 1, which deals with early Barrett-era Floyd, Episode 12, which rates all of P.J. Harvey's catalog, Episode 15, which is the Raincoats, with Pitchfork writer Jen Pelly guesting, Episode 17, which is Don Randy on David Axelrod's catalog, Episodes 28 and 29, Bob Bob Mayer on The Replacements, Episodes 64 to 68, which is our Black Sabbath series, Episodes 103 and 104, Vashti Bunyan, and then Episodes 107 and 108, Joel Selvin's Jim Gordon series. But wait just a minute. This is just the entrance to the rabbit hole. Join us as we descend down, down, down on week one of Discograffiti's 30th anniversary of Mojo Magazine Deep Dive. Of course, if you're a Patreon subscriber, then you already know to keep your ears peeled throughout the week, because this Monday brings the Patreon-only wildcard episode, Mojo Magazine Bonus Material Part 1, not to mention Wednesday's incredible Patreon-only episode of Discograffiti's The Top Ten. This week's list features the indomitable Joe Kennedy and reflects the staggering amount of music that Mojo's introduced to us over the last 30 years. It's the top 10 most monumental Mojo musical discoveries. Make sure you visit patreon.com slash discograffiti and check out the thematically related deep dive as a music obsessive's way of life. Our Patreon's been up and running for a year, and with two episodes a week, there are close to 100 Patreon episodes at this point. That's an entire universe of incredible non-content content available to you for the price of a cup of coffee a week. And of course, be sure to mark your calendars because next Friday, October 6th, we're coming at you with part two of our interview with John Mulvey, editor of Mojo Magazine. Trust me, you're not going to want to miss it. And so, from now till then, don't let our youth go to waste, lads and ladies. It's Discography. Discography.